to Film Suck and inadvertently we're continu- continuing our disaster coverage with the topic being the HBO Chernobyl show and uh, again not intended a sheer accident that we're <laughs> that we're following up our our contagion our, our contagion week um, our um, you know kind of uh, what pandemic films week with this um, but we brought, have are bringing in a, a quite renowned expert named Kate Brown um, who's written a book a manual for survival environmental history of the Chernobyl disaster to discuss both exactly that plus um, her reactions to the HBO uh, show of last year, which was tremendously popular and really, really um, revered by critics. Um, Kate Brown, let me quickly tell you, is the professor of history at University of Maryland and a 2009 Guggenheim Fellow. She's also the author of A Biography of No Place, which won the American Historical Association's International European History Prize for the best uh, for best book. Um, and again, she's going to she's going to be our um, expert consult um, on both the show and the Chernobyl disaster and its and its um, after effects, which are continuing to this day. Yeah, and again, I just want to say also, Kate Brown is actually I think she's fluent in Russian. She spent quite a lot of time in Ukraine and Russia, and uh, so her research is very kind of hands on. She's almost mm-hmm. like a detective. The, that seems like the way she works and the way she writes those books. And uh, so, yeah, that's. That's especially, I think, kind of her Important. expertise is valuable. Yeah, definitely right. valuable. She's not like, a, what do you call it, some kind of armchair. What do you call those people? Mm-hmm. Armchair historian. Right, right. <laughs> she definitely <laughs> right. goes out there. Yeah, so and, the Chernobyl uh, show, yeah. which we both we, we, which we both watched a year later after everyone was raving about it. Um, yeah, I barely more timely, made it. Right? Yeah, way more timely because now, of course, it's it's ultra terrifying because so much of it resonates with the current yeah. um, coronavirus pandemic, especially for me mm-hmm. in hearing all of the the, the essentially you know p- political and you know, you know rhetoric um, around, especially trying to hide it, disguise it, figure out how to fix blame on the approach villains while you know not taking proper action is all extra terrifying mm-hmm. now to witness um yeah i i barely made it through the first episode i it's it's just me no no one else feels this way but i i, I kind of hate the prestige tv me of too. today i hate it there's a tone that is always struck of this kind of there's there's all these lush production values combined with this kind of somber self-seriousness and it's all there's always this melodramatic quality to me that seems perceptible to oh, me, yeah. but other people take as just perfectly wonderful drama. And no, so it's I, sentimentality. Uh, sentimentality yes. kills emotion. So sorry, I'm like yelling all this, but, but like, I, I'm totally yes. on your side. You shouldn't say that you're alone. You're definitely not alone in this. Just well, that's like good to know. I, I feel quite lonely comedy. sometimes because now it's you know the second mm-hmm. you know this golden age of television is all you ever hear, and all and all the serious television is great, and, I, and most of it I, I literally cannot watch it. So anyway, but you know, no. guess what saved me of all unlikely things? Stellan Skarsgård is just such a good actor. Oh yeah, <laughs> that just he alone even though he's doing a total cliche character i mean he's actually based on a real figure whose name i'm forgetting now but kind of very sure i think yes yeah. and so kind of mm-hmm. a the apparatchik who gets kind of uh, assigned to manage the chernobyl disaster doesn't know what he's getting into of course but he's just so good that he kind of hooked me into even the melodramatics and i was able to sort of get 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 through it. It, it so it's not my sort of thing it's a very we talk about this in the interview it's it's lushly what historically accurate to the point that that can become its own source of fascination it's very 
you know, 80s Soviet Union in what clothing and props and props settings. Props were accurate. And, I know that Russians, yeah. my Russian acquaintance were sort of in awe how come they have the exact sort of some kind of like tin cup that mm-hmm. people supposedly used a lot in the 1980s. And that was for them just beyond somehow fascinating but right. the other things that you say that are more glaring about the show how uh, i don't know fetishistic in a way it is uh, obviously too pretty mm-hmm. and over the top self-serious and sentimental and and all those things just somehow it doesn't bother people usually no it usually in fact comes in for high price which which in fact it did oh, yeah. um you know some which, critics yeah. really really in fact a number of them really tried to to mention there's a lot of inaccuracies even though the reputation if you uh-huh. read up on the kind of pr the press on the show it's all about its accuracy that seems to be at least what i read it's bragging about how accurate and what a passion project it was to really convey what people don't know about chernobyl which is a tremendous lot because of course the party line um what common knowledge that got released about chernobyl is you know it's a it's a fabrication um like the what the f- supposed 54 54 deaths that resulted, which is just a ludicrous number. In the show, they insist it's the, the Soviet said claimed it was 31 and stuck to that for many years. But I guess 54 ultimately became the number. And that's crazy and ridiculous and low. And, 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 the, and the idea that they, it was contained, it ultimately was a horrible disaster that got you know, kind of fixed and that even Chernobyl, the, the land itself has come back and animals have come back there and everything's fine. And of course, you know, Kate Brown really addresses that very, very strongly in her book, how inaccurate that is. But some of the inaccuracies that the critics talk about just in the show, you know, things like uh, what, um, you know, the, the 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 character played by Jared Harris, who is the, you know, the scientist who was actually put in charge of, again, trying to, tr- trying to trying to you know close <laughs> um uh the 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 entirely open you know exploded nuclear reactor um you know having him be do this kind of passion thing at the end of the film at the, at the trial of the of the three main figures um at the nuclear facility who got basically blamed for what happened and he was not at the trial um so you've got things like like that happening you've got a lot of fudging for the sake of you know, a more dramatic narrative. And what is that dramatic narrative? I mean, you should probably say that yourself, Evgenia. You've got a good line on that. You mean just the plot line? Yeah, what, well, no. What's the overall what's the narrative they're going for? Which is, you know, oh, the, the, oh, the Soviet the overall system. Narrative. Yeah. <laughs> the Soviet system is so, um, just such a failed state, so corrupt, doesn't care about um, its citizens at all. And uh, thus, this disaster happens there, and only mm-hmm. there it could happen and did. And uh, we should all remember how evil <laughs> that the Soviet place was Union in terms is. of yes. like the, the government. Yeah, the Soviet Union, what an evil empire it was, mm-hmm. despite the good, heroic, simple people. That, that's, that's there. Mm-hmm. That's there. The miners and all the first responders are heroic and good, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and it, and it, there's a feeling that it could never happen in the West because of the better safety regulations, and it actually addressed like directly in the monologues and this like lengthy monologues at the um, in the last episode uh, where the trial, kind of the show trial, takes place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that's that's sort of supposed to I think make Americans feel good about themselves and. Uh, 
Yes, by implication, know. it's you know, look yeah. over there at them and how yeah, bad that was bad. That's what's yeah, bad. Yeah, be grateful. You live in a great country. Yeah. We care about the people, and nothing like that can ever happen can here. Happen so here. think of that. I mean, I'm obviously slightly, I guess, ex- exaggerating, but not that much. There's definitely that feeling, and I think someone was sharing it with me. I'm not active on Twitter, but someone I think tweeted it. There's definitely some conservative pundits. I forgot which magazine, maybe New York Post or something, wrote exactly that when mm-hmm. reviewing it a year ago or mm-hmm. a bit less than a year ago. How grateful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels to be growing up, to be in America rather than there. Well, and the you implication <laughs> that we, we didn't have our own disasters. I mean, Love Canal, yeah. Three Mile Island, and all these things that we oh, we uh, are just like, shh, <laughs> don't, no, don't bring up happened. our own terrible history and our, as you point out, the American involvement with the Chernobyl, the handling of Chernobyl, mm-hmm. which was, you know, nothing yeah. to be But that's about. what Kate's going to talk about. And she's going to talk about that, exactly. Yeah, she's going to talk about it. And just, uh, again, to just uh, one more time to say it, because I found her book so much yeah, we can't even compare. I don't know why I'm comparing, but it's uh, so much scarier than any, um, I think, Chernobyl-related documentary even, or this HBO show, which does have scary scenes of, you know, people dying from horrible kind of radiation-related um, sort of burns and, like, the poisoning, disintegration of yeah. your bodies. Poisoning, yeah. yeah. And despite all that, all those scenes, and, and again, in the despite the fact that there are docu- a few documentaries out there that uh, show real sort of Chernobyl in a way, mutants. I think her book is much scarier because it talks about um, nuclear disasters and generally nuclear energy that is dangerous, not in the past, but now and in the future. And nothing has been done about it. It's not going to be done. It's all whitewashed, Mm -hmm. um, like globally speaking, not Mm -hmm. just in terms of Soviet Union. And that's actually very scary. So Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, and we're going to, we did talk about all that. So that's coming up. Yes, we can't very well say enjoy. But um, <laughs> I think you'll find to say, it. And I hope find you it enjoy. It. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. People like people who listen to us. I think a few times already. It's been a year since the show came out, the HBO show, and they've kind of been asking <laughs> what, what, what we uh-huh. think. Yeah, just what they think. And I know that I've been kind of really didn't want to watch the show for a long time. I like watched it for, I don't know, maybe like 20 minutes when it first came out a year ago, and I couldn't force myself. And now I finally, it was a good, I think it was a good um, kind of incentive mm-hmm. to really watch it because I also read um, most of your book, Manual for Survival. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so and I, I thought it was being interesting in rather than just talking about some kind of like purely film aesthetic or or whatnot, just to actually talk about what what the the substance of that is, you know. And, and why, Evgenia, why were you uh, reluctant to watch it? Oh, uh, oh, yeah. It's it's actually also is pronounced Evgenia, Evgenia uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's all right. Yeah, uh, I reluctant because I don't know. The the moment I turned it on, it immediately looked to me. I wonder what you think because you've lived in Russia and you're like, you, you know, you know, you know that world. To me, it looked like very fatishistic uh, to pretty it up 
mm-hmm. possibly accurate in terms of the um, I don't know the material objects for for the time or most of them were I guess accurate right. but it, it just completely to me it felt completely all the scenes that I even first watched for like 20 minutes a year ago felt like completely lifeless fake just just kind mm. of yeah fetishistic lifeless and just basically at this point now when i watched all five episodes to prepare for for this it almost just could have been uh, game of thrones uh-huh. but, <laughs> but and actually the you know but but in another it's like another dimension you had right. another world <laughs> which is like a weird soviet ukraine <laughs> and uh yeah that's how that's how it felt and besides it's like to me also coming from there i grew up in moscow just the whole this type of like Soviet uh, intelligentsia versus workers, this whole world felt so stereotypical. Like it just cliche on top of cliche mm-hmm. on top of cliche. None of that came alive, even though some of the intentions, I guess, were good. Not all Russians were depicted as some kind of right, <laughs> horrible, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. all that. And people, yes. and, yeah. And even I think some potentially Russian liberals like Masha Gassin mm-hmm. hated that. That mm-hmm. somehow it wasn't uh, shown as nasty enough. Oh, yeah, <laughs> also, so, only a few people were evil, like Dad, yeah. whatever, but I'm not, not everyone. Sure, I'm not sure I would put Masha Gessen in the liberal category. <laughs> but I, I just read her piece uh, recently mm-hmm. that she published over yeah, a year ago. Really sort of, um, Cold Warrior mm-hmm. reminded mm-hmm. me of Cold Warrior, kind of. Yeah, but anyway, enough of me. What, what, what yeah. did you, what did you think of it? And Masha Gessen too, the reaction just because your book is it seems like fully completely accidentally coincided the release of your That's book right. with the show which is very uncanny i imagine mm-hmm. um, so how well there happened? seems to be like a, a zeitgeist you know which and, and i'm part of it because about in 2004 an editor asked me to write a book about chernobyl as like a as a pivotal moment in history and i at the time 2004 i said oh absolutely not nobody's interested in it there's already too much written about it I you know thought it was a bad idea, but there I was ten years later, thinking, oh, you know, we really don't know how many people died, how many people got sick. All, all you know, there's all these huge uncertainties. You know, why would the UN say only 33 people died and Greenpeace says mm-hmm. 90,000 people will die? You know, that was such a huge gap. So I thought I would do research, and then it seems like other people also got interested. In, I think because of the upswing, upswing in tourism, which started in 2004, and I was I was there right when they started letting people in as tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sort of disaster, you know, I think it rides this wave of disaster porn, where mm-hmm. people like to go and visit the slums of Rio de Janeiro or Detroit or the Chernobyl zone and look. I think it's mostly young people who are interested in looking at these ruins of the past in order to kind of think about a possible future you know the grim what you know like are we heading that way kind of thing that's why they want to see Pripyat and mm-hmm. um so but it was so I do think there's a zeitgeist which is why the HBO show and and my book and then there's two other books by Serhi Plohi and um, Adam Higginbotham came out all about the same time mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting and it's all coincidental Mm-hmm. So you had no idea that the HBO show is in the works, and so it all mm-hmm. just no. inter- interesting. Yeah, in terms of the zeitgeisty thing, from what I understand, even though I mostly hated the show, but the creator of it, who also used to be a screenwriter for projects like something, a scream movie, a scary movie three, Hangover 
two and three, mm-hmm. that type of thing, which is kind of surprising. And then he turned to this, but he supposedly wanted it to be some kind of parable or comparison to Trump's America mm-hmm. and like yes. some kind of cl- climate change. We're all, you know, climate mm-hmm. disaster. We're all heading to, which is, I mean, it, it is, it is, I guess, interesting that he's, he, he wanted it to be read that way, but I don't know. What, what did you think? of the show when you finally, you know, saw it, got yeah. to see it. I thought, you know, I thought, oh, this is very familiar. And the reason I thought it was familiar, not because, I mean, yes, it looked Soviet and people sort of spoke Soviet and there's recognizable characters mm-hmm. um, that came, you know, sort of come down from history as well as some made up characters. But what was most familiar for me was that about a month or two, Six weeks after the accident, the uh, Kremlin put out a circular to the Soviet mass media saying, this is how we're going to cover the Chernobyl accident. We are going to lionize the liquidators who, you know, as part of masculine heroics, who sacrificed their lives to save humanity from a bigger disaster. We're mm-hmm. going to enclose, we're going to tell the, the public that radiation is safely enclosed within the Chernobyl zone. And we're going to try to convince them as quickly as possible that this accident, the chapter on the accident is over, that we've mission accomplished. Um, They also um, wanted to make sure what there was another feature of it that was really, that the show reminded me of. Um, I can't remember right now, but I'm going to get, you're going to edit this, I take it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. And so they sent out journalists to get this one story, and they only sent out vetted, trusted journalists. And that's kind of what the what uh, Craig Mazin has done, is repeated the Soviet line, um, huh. adding a little Cold War spin, as we would expect. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, it's, it's the seconds ticking down. Oh, the, that, the final thing that the uh, Soviets circular for the media was we're going to blame this we're going to make sure that the blame is is, is squarely placed on the operators and we're going to have a trial for them um and so if you notice the show begins with these operators and Mm -hmm. uh, especially you know the shift operator is is really misbehaving and he's just an awful guy and um and it ends with the trial Mm-hmm. of these mm. same people. And it, and there's mm-hmm. lots of that sort of, you know, the, the liquidators are there, the miners, the soldiers are selflessly saving the situation and, and exposing themselves knowingly uh, mm-hmm. in this heroic way in order to uh, make sure that the, you know, there isn't a meltdown of China syndrome where the, the hot fuel doesn't melt down, that there isn't an additional explosion. Um, and and also that, you know, outside that, that this, it's a very contained story. You know, it, it opens with the accident. It closes with the trial. That all takes about 18 months. Um, we never really, other than to go to the hospitals where the medical drama plays out, we never really leave the, the zone itself, the, the you know, created 30-kilometer mm-hmm. Chernobyl zone. And that is the Moscow line. That's what they wanted people to believe, that this was a, a contained accident, contained it geographically and contained chronologically in time, that it had a beginning and a middle and an end. We know now, of course, that uh, there are forest fires in the Chernobyl zone, and that smoke 
uh, takes radioactivity that's stored in the leaf litter and in the trees, and it sends it up, uh, volatilizes it, sends it up in the form of ash and smoke, and it travels long distances. Mm -hmm. Big forest fire in the Red Forest, the most contaminated area of the Chernobyl Zone in 2017. And that smoke traveled widely. Um, We know that blueberries that are being industrially picked in the Pripyat marshes, which is contiguous to the Chernobyl Zone, come up with high levels of radioactive cesium. And those berries circulate the world in global markets. Um, That This accident continues, you know, it's like it has a vast geographic stretch and, uh, and it continues to this day. It, hasn't, it didn't end in 1987 with the trial of the, of the plant operators. Yeah. Well, well, it must have seemed... It must have seemed to be accomplished for the Soviet propagandists. That was like a brilliant... And, <laughs> right. and, and what I saw when I watched that show, I said, oh, that's from Igor Kostin's book of photographs. Oh, and that's from Svetlana Alexievich's Voices mm-hmm. of Children. Like I could reference the sources he used, which were a lot of the sources that were produced and or and or researched during the Soviet time, and drawn drew from these Soviet media sources, which were working from that circular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It must have seemed incredible to you. I was just looking again at your intro. You describe what seems like shots from from the films and techniques from the from the Chernobyl show you say oh and then there will be the shots of the of the radiation ticking you know we'll hear the ticking sound we'll see the heroic men will yes. you you have a description in your intro that that's like a lot of the early parts of the Chernobyl yes, that's show that's right and I did, and I knew cuz I knew I knew that that's what um that's that's the story you get you know mm-hmm. and as they say it, it's a it's a very gendered story uh, it's a very, it, you know, it, it, it has a lot of drama to it. And that's a real trope you see in coverage over the decades about Chernobyl is, in fact, I just fact-checked a New York Times story today where, you know, biggest nuclear accident in human history, um, lots of drama, lots of, you know, bloodletting, mm-hmm. you know, graphic pictures of people with their right skin blackened and it's sloughing off mm-hmm. and then the end which is much like the hbo show is but it's okay mm-hmm. you know it could never happen <laughs> here <laughs> wherever yeah. here is outside that's just a, a, a particular story you know of the soviets um outside of the zone it's fine you know all these people can live safely They're, they were not and are not today contaminated so, so, you know, um, people who are in the entertainment business want it both ways. They want to scare their viewers or readers with a, a really juicy drama, mm-hmm. you know, an action film horror story. And that, but they don't want them to go away second-guessing the nuclear industry. So they add these mm-hmm. caveats at the end that's, that, that everything's okay now. Mm-hmm. Yep, and and this this is why I found your book is so much scarier, and it, it actually gave me nightmares. No, because because that's exactly to to follow your point. Because you're not saying, oh, this is some f- story from the past. No matter like how horrible it was, it's actually about the present and the future and the entire potentially nuclear power industry is very very dangerous and somehow it's not been talked about whether you know and it's the testing and generally the nuclear power plants are exist in america and in other western countries so yeah what do you think i mean we slightly pivot away from the show what what do you think 
the reason for that is that it's completely somehow ignored in a lot of people. Doesn't matter even on the left to uh, who supposedly um, you know <laughs> pro environment actually somehow trust and almost like trust in have a trust in nuclear energy. Well, um, I, I mean, I think we strongly want. Uh, a single solution to climate change. We want to be able to take one big technological fix that solves the problems that created by all the other previous technological fixes. You know, like the Green Revolution was to solve the problem of overpopulation and um, fossil fuels were to solve the problem of human misery and want and, and hard physical labor. And indeed, these technological fixes solved those problems and created this bigger new problem of climate change. And so, again, we want to just plug something in that um, can be plugged in anywhere in any ecological um, territory in any climate around the world. Just take a nuclear reactor. The the Russians are now producing floating nuclear reactors, and you can just, you know, uh, tow it over to Dubai and plug it in. Um, that sounds really attractive. You don't have to um, look at local conditions, mm-hmm. local politics. Um, it's a it's a singular energy source, so business interests like it. You know, you can um, meter it and sell it to your customers. If you have solar mm-hmm. panels on everybody's individual roofs, they then generate that power and they generate those the, the profits or the savings from that power. Same thing with wind energy. Every farmer out in uh, eastern Washington state gets $2,000 a month for every wind generator they they have on their their vast properties. And they want as many as possible, but they're being limited to two apiece um, because that would crowd out coal and other (laughs) sources of energy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think the problem with renewables is that they're uh, economically democratic. And they're not mm-hmm. you know, uh, places where you can uh, isolate and centralize power and the profits from power. So we're being you know, publicly offered a false choice between nuclear power and fossil fuels. Clearly, we don't want, we want to phase out fossil fuels, so we're, mm-hmm. we're being offered nuclear power. And, and as I say, that's a false choice. We have so many other solutions that are appropriate for local uh, ecologies and local climates. And mm-hmm. And that takes maybe a little bit more thought and planning, but it's also um, uh, much more democratic. I mean, and I think we have to think about this as we've uh, shifted from coal burning to oil, uh, which just goes, you know, doesn't have to be carried by, dug out by miners or carried by uh, railroad workers. Um, oil just goes along pipelines. And then we move to nuclear power where there might be 35 plant operators on a shift who generate all the power for an entire, you know, city. Um, So that the fewer people involved producing that energy, the less democratic it is. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Especially when the power is behind mm -hmm. gates and Mm -hmm. guards, you know, is a a highly patrolled, quite secretive uh, uh, territory for nuclear Mm -hmm. security. There's quite a movement now on the left for that's pro-nuclear. It's, yes, there is. Yeah, that's it's then, always quite. You no, know, and then it's easy to ignore, like because what I found, you know, when I went through the Soviet archives, is that in the first five years after the accident, 
uh, doctors on the ground and researchers and public health officials and radiation monitors start to notice uh, disturbing trends in the health statistics, uh, increasing frequencies of disease, uh, health problems, fertility problems, uh, children born with uh, birth defects, children born that fail to thrive and, and die within 28 days of, of birth. And they, they write these, these down, but they don't know because it's classified. They don't know how much radiation is in their area and how much their patients have been exposed to. So they write in classified documents you know, up the chain of command that eventually ends up in Moscow. And that was a brave act because at the time, public health officials were supposed to report that Soviet citizens are getting happier and healthier every day. And they are defiantly saying, well, in fact, they're not getting healthier and happier every day. They're, in fact, getting sicker. And, and by 1989, they're starting to say, maybe this has something to do with Chernobyl contaminants. Um, so this is all. And by 1990, officials in Belarus and in Ukraine are saying, look, we have a public health disaster on our hands and, and, and we can't handle it. We need international help. Um, and so that's when UN agencies come in to do an independent assessment of Chernobyl health effects. And first, the World Health Organization goes in, um, and they send in three scientists who are mostly physicists, and they take a 10-day tour, and they say there's no problem. After 10 days, they say there's no problem. You could double or even triple the doses these people are getting. Everything would be fine. Um the, that nobody takes that seriously. The World Health really, that's, that's really an embarrassment for World Health. And so then the Moscow asks International Atomic Energy Agency to do an independent assessment. And they send in from one to 200 scientists for 18 months. And they do their own study, uh, a very small health study, and then they take a lot of measurements. And they say the same thing. You know, we think everything's fine. Extrapolating from Hiroshima we predict we don't see any health problems. We see a lot of health problems here, but none that we think are related to doses comparable to those that people got in Hiroshima. Hmm. Um, and so, so what the um, so then I I moved on to work in from I moved on from the Soviet archives to work in UN archives, and what I find are just a few UN officials who are. Um, you know, cons paid consultants for nuclear agencies um, in the United States, France, Great Britain, and Russia, who are doing their best to help the Moscow officials minimize this, the, you know, the, the recording of the effects of the disaster. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, what, you know, what, I mean, they're hiding biopsies they get of kids with cancer. It's a big spike, you know, already by 1989 of kids with thyroid cancer. They, they don't believe it. They take, the Soviet doctors are like, well, take these biopsies. You check them out. And they, they take them home, and sure enough, they check out. Um, Soviet uh, researchers in Belarus and Ukraine especially uh, give them all this research. They've done these case control studies. Um, the, the Westerners say, oh, this is bad science. You know, It's not peer-reviewed. It doesn't follow standardized Western standardized protocols, and so they toss it out. Um, and they just keep turning over and over again to the Hiroshima studies that were run by the Americans that started five years uh, after the bombing. So for the first five years, they don't know what happened in Japan. And that was a very politicized study because the Americans were very concerned that nuclear weapons would get categorized like chemical and biological mm -hmm. weapons as an illegitimate form of warfare. So they denied that there was any radioactive fallout 
and only counted as the dose that the Japanese survivors got was less than a second of you know a big blast, a big X-ray, um, mm-hmm. and all the fallout that surrounded these people that they you know lived amidst is not counted in the dose. So that's you know that's a um, a tricky study to call the gold standard because of those politics, but mm-hmm. indeed they do to this day, and they certainly did in the nineteen nineties. But, so I think so, the left yeah. is also like saying, well, the UN says only 33 to 54 people mm-hmm. die. How can the UN be wrong? So it was like more of a, and probably America was part of it too, but it was more of a kind of global cover-up for the disaster rather than purely like a Soviet uh, evil bureaucrats trying to save their careers and, and whatnot. Yeah, by, well, I mean, by, cover, yeah. Co- yeah, cover-up implies that there's some you know, big conspiracy. It was more <laughs> like um, uh, a, a general disbelief among people who who were health physicists, these are physicists who work, you know, um, to protect us from uh, setting standards for nuclear power workers and in case of emergencies. Um, they, and in hospitals, right? We, I mean, a lot of people are intentionally administered doses of radiation for diagnostics when you get CAT scans and x-rays and for treatments, uh, especially when you have mm-hmm. cancers. And so, you know, radiologists were real concerned. I mean, they, they, and they truly believed that the doses they were prescribing were safe doses. And so if these Chernobyl studies turned out, you know, something troubling that you could be administering CAT scans and actually giving kids leukemia um, or doing too many dental x-rays, which could be giving people thyroid cancer, then that was news that was terrible news for their industry. And so it, you know, it takes a long time to accept difficult truths. And I think that's part of what isn't quite a cover-up, but a, a very difficult paradigm shift that we've really yet to accomplish. But but certainly, you know, doses for x-rays and, and administration of cassians have gone way down because doctors have started to realize that they're far more dangerous than they had presumed earlier. Mm-hmm. I see. But, but again, the... The show, if we go back to the show, it mm-hmm. makes it look like it's purely, as you said, it feels a bit like Cold War, like it's purely um, like a, a, a Soviet problem and also Soviet problem of the past rather than present and future. And I found it interesting that in your book, um, I, I've never heard of it, and I, I mean, that might be my ignorance, but in your book, you specifically write, there's an interesting chapter where you describe this um, UCLA um, scientist, Robert Gale, uh, managing to get into USSR right after the Chernobyl disaster and uh, basically trying, you know, his experimental treatment of bone marrow transplants on the patients. Uh, he never tried, um, they were never tested on humans before, so it was almost like his playground. It was a complete failure. And um, while the Soviet doctors more conservative treatment actually were way more successful and um yeah was it I, i'm just curious because it was somehow so egregious to me what, was it a revelation for you how did you find out about it and so what what's that what's the story behind it basically the american involvement immediately in the chernobyl that seems like no one talks about mm-hmm. yeah well you know robert gale was a, a leukemia doctor um mm-hmm. and he didn't have any special specialization in radiation medicine yeah. Um, or, you know, or physics. Um, but he had these connections through Arm & Hammer 
to uh, Russia, and so he mm-hmm. you know, got in. And I think you know he's saying, "I have this maybe this miracle drug that could cure these firemen," and so that was pretty seductive, I'm sure, for the Soviets on the ground who were you know panicking as they were watching these firemen and, and nuclear fan operators perish. And so, and he came. Um, you know, I found out. I mean, th- this story I patched together. You know. From published sources, and I and I did talk to Dr. Gale himself, who says, you know, who, who's had different. He, he's had different interviews over time, and he's, he's given you know, slightly different versions of it. But he he's he, to, when I talked to him most recently, he stands by the experiment. Um, he tried it out on himself uh, beforehand. It had never this drug had never been tested on humans before. So he and a Soviet doctor took a dose of this, and, and they mm-hmm. they were okay. Um, and so then they administered it to the firemen. Um, but you know that's just that's an interesting story because you know the Soviets had had unfortunately a lot of nuclear excursions and accidents, and they had exposed an awful lot of people in their race to produce nuclear weapons. And so they're pretty good in nuclear medicine and, and how to deal with people in nuclear emergencies. They had a, a big plutonium processing plant in Siberia called the Mayak plant that made plutonium. Mm-hmm. And they had exposed so many people there um, in these really sort of shoddy working conditions. And they had gotten good at both diagnosing low levels you know, of radiation disease. When, when somebody's been acutely exposed to high levels of radiation, it's really apparent after... Um, you know, right away, people start to, to to vomit, and then they start to lose their hair, and they get these. After about eight days, they get you know, burns on their skin, and uh, their digestive tract just dissolves from inside, and that's hard to miss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but the more um, subtle effects of lower doses of exposure, the Soviets really had studied that um, far better than than doctors in the West, and they had also learned because they were never allowed access to information about how much radiation their patients had been exposed to. They, they learned to use their patients' bodies as a biological dosimeter to, you know, and they could guess pretty accurately by looking at changes in chromosomes and, and tooth enamel, uh, neurological uh, conditions, how much a person, a dose a person had taken in. Um, and so they're very good, and I, you know, that's why I, that, that's what I'm trying to show in that chapter is that it's not like there's this bad state, the Soviets that make all these mistakes, and the good state, the Americans who come in and save the day. That's how it was reported in the West, and that story simply isn't true. Mm-hmm. And that is why, like, you got a lot of, oh, not a lot, but quite, quite some bad press when that's your book right. came out, right? I saw like mm-hmm. Forbes, basically people trying to attack mm-hmm. you for doubting <laughs> American superiority. Yeah, yeah. Right? that's Michael um, Schellenberger, who's, got, who's the head of two NGOs uh, that are, have you know, environment in their titles, but they are anti-renewables and promote, you know, he's basically makes his money promoting nuclear power as an alternative to fossil fuels. Um, so Forbes is hiring, you know, critics who are, um, you know, are, who are, are ne- can't possibly be objective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, make makes sense. But um, yeah, but do you think, like, in this case, like, 
you, you did you did say that you're probably not a big fan of the show, but then the show is exact example of like the full um, kind of American imperialist viewpoint, and it's hugely somehow... well received. I mean, just celebrated this this show. The press for the show is off the charts positive. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, you know, in, in some ways, I, I'm grateful to the show because it got a lot of people interested mm-hmm. in Chernobyl and young people then want to find out, well, and I, I feel the dozens of, of journalists who say, you know, is, is this true? Is this, you know, made for TV mm-hmm. drama uh, historically true? Well, you know, and that's kind of a goofy question because it's a made for TV mm-hmm. drama with fictionalized dialogue and fictionalized characters. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it did is lead people to go try to find out more information. Um, And and so for for that reason, I think the show was great. And and it's interesting that it was so popular, both among the critics and among Mm -hmm. the the audience. It was one of the most watched television shows ever. um, Because I think people are dwelling more and more on ecological disaster, on the prospect of having whole swaths of territory that we have to just walk away from because we've contaminated them irrevocably or, or nearly irrevocably, if you consider the, uh, the escape of human time. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it shows a little bit of our, our generalized anxiety, which, you know, we're now sort of, it's revisited upon us now as we all right. retreat to our homes and we, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, our lives, have, our lives, and our societies and our economies have, tra- have changed drastically. And and a pand- most pandemics, whether it's HIV or SARS or the coronavirus, are have environmental roots, um, you know, inherently. Do you feel any additional alarm about the pandemic, which is of course terrifying anyway, because of? your wealth of knowledge in, in examining this other case. It just seems like there's so many echoes as, you know, watching mm-hmm. Chernobyl now is to, is to, is to <laughs> have right. an extra level. Actually a year later, horror. it's more powerful. Yeah. Yes. Than like yes. yeah, last year, no one yeah. like, would care. Yeah. The thought of being surrounded by an invisible pathogen that it can attack you mm-hmm. and cause your, you to be very sick or, or even to die is terrifying. And it, it means we approach, in the Chernobyl case, it meant, and people spoke about this quite eloquently when I talked to them, that they approach their natural environment now suddenly, you know, something dear to them, trees and, and soils and, and mm-hmm. water, as something you know, potentially toxic and dangerous. And that that, that shift is, is very disturbing, especially for people who are, are farmers and, and, and foragers yeah. as the as the people around the Chernobyl territories were. For us now, we look at other humans who are, you know, normally are dear to us and, and we'd like to be close to them because we're herd animals. And now we have to be six feet away and, and we can't be in large gatherings. So we have this very altered, and probably for a long time, altered understanding of human society and our fellow human beings. So in that way that sort of rupture in awareness in both cases you know that comes from these environmental disasters is very similar the other sort of thing that i've been dwelling on and disturbs me somewhat is that i watched how the soviets in good faith sought to restore the territory in the fallout zones which was quite widespread um to their 
pristine state. And that was a promise they made to their people. We're going to restore this to its pre-accident state. You're going to be able to farm without worries. And they couldn't do that. They, with, despite billions of rubles, um, tons and tons of chemical uh, cleansing agents and bulldozers and armies of soldiers, they could not do that work. Um, and, it, and as a consequence, the Soviet Union spent so much money, dedicated so many resources that they went bankrupt. You know, just went into an economic spiral that started in 1987 and kept going into the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And that economic fallout we're seeing right now, of course, as the stock markets open mm-hmm. and close immediately, they drop you know, 10, 20% in a day, and just unheard of um, uh, lack of faith in the global economy. Mm-hmm. And that makes me really nervous, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, well, but you know uh, what I, I wonder? Ah, sorry, go ahead, Eileen. Oh, I was just going to say the rhetoric of mm-hmm. of Trump and his administration, et cetera, has just added an extra la- layer of terror as the misinformation is so blatant mm-hmm. for at least right. people who are paying attention or who know people in Italy or other countries and know it from early on. It, they're lying or they're, they're mm-hmm. obfuscating. Um, it just seems like that, that echoed so strongly watching Chernobyl, of course, is the the party That's line. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the you know the public is often uh, gendered feminine, and and fear of public hysteria, um, the fear of people, the mob, the crowd, the, uh, mm-hmm. the populace acting in some irrational way is is what motivates a lot of leadership. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. actually, I found that the people in the Chernobyl contaminated regions. Were very um, calm, even when they found out they'd been exposed. They were they acted quite rationally, and they were the ones who came up with really good solutions as they wrote their leaders. I could read you know, thousands of letters in the archive about you know they would write their leaders. This is what we found out. This is how much radiation we're living with it, and it's right here in the school playground. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it's caused by trucks you know roaring through from the Chernobyl zone through our community. If you just wrote built a bypass, and if you if you paid that that uh, grass in the schoolyard, you know, they would have very uh, sensible solutions to, to their local environment. And, and that's because people on the ground are very astute about their environment and their mm-hmm. communities. And they are sort of experts in survival that way. We, we shouldn't treat the crowd or the populace as some large um, gendered feminine hysterical body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. but but you know what I, I wonder, Kate. So, do you think um, you spent a lot of time researching um, in in Russian, like former Soviet republics? But basically, do you think that the collapse of the Soviet Union made the the aftermath um, of Chernobyl worse because of the also the immediate economic collapse that followed um, and made it potentially probably even harder to <laughs> to attain to. You know, to the consequences. Um, you even wrote, like I liked your phrase, that at some point I think um, is it your direct quote that environmental collapse can, could hardly be differentiated from you know economic collapse. Mm-hmm. I think for anyone who would come to Soviet Union in the early '90s and look around or go anywhere further from Moscow, you know, to slightly further regions, it just all looked like <laughs> abandoned, partially like. That's right. Right, kind of mm-hmm. destroyed, weird zone of alienation. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I wonder what what's your kind of take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think 
it definitely exacerbated the problems people had. Um, they, now they had to retreat after the Soviet government fell apart. They, the subsidies that they were getting to buy food that was produced elsewhere, that, mm-hmm. that was a huge help. If you could buy food that was made around Moscow or out in Siberia, that food was much cleaner than the food you were producing on your farm. That yeah. lowered your exposures. That stopped. That system stopped. The medical monitoring stopped. So any you know kind of um, early care people could get, whether they were developing uh, you know, early stage cancers, uh, had fertility problems, had problems with autoimmune systems, etc. That that just dried up. You know the, the hospitals were on uh, half staff. The fir- the first people to abandon the zone were, were medical professionals because they saw they, they understood that this was a real problem. Um, there's you know. There was nothing in the shops, and people had nothing, no salary to buy anything in the shops. So everybody retreated to subsistence farming on contaminated ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that all definitely exacerbated the problem. Um, and and uh, you know, I, I mean, I was in working on another project in the, in the early to mid '90s in provincial Ukraine, and the town I was living in, Zhitomir, had one streetlight on at night. And you know the the heating, which normally went on in October, didn't go on until December. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of harsh conditions of being in a cement block building with no heat for mm-hmm. two cold months also mm-hmm. makes people mm-hmm. you know, stressed and, and and more sickly. And um, and all that was a perfect storm. You know, there are far fewer calories, far fewer you know, fresh vegetables and fruit and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then it's sort of counterintuitive because according to this, again, this sort of uh, the party line uh, story is that if Soviet Union collapsed, the evil empire collapsed, where they were all hiding and the disaster and didn't care about the victims, then now when the, the sources were more open and, and, I don't know, all kind of charities could come in and all and all that, the actually the, the more people should have been helped you would think mm-hmm. but that you know from from the western there are different ngos and i don't know what western governments potentially but again if it as you say it only got it worse and it didn't happen what does it even <laughs> it's it's a kind of bizarre paradigm then yeah right? despite right yes i tried to show how you know i went into the the greenpeace uh archives in amsterdam and and they really you know wanted to help they also wanted to show that there was a real public health problem. And what I found is that um, at least one KGB agent infiltrated the Greenpeace in office in Ukraine, which was the first NGO to open an office in the Soviet Union. And um, just, you know, quietly sabotaged all the projects that were going on mm. um, so that nothing really, you know, you know, they, they, they brought in a whole sort of lab, a mobile lab, and they were going to go out and take samples and test people. But the lab went out twice and tested only 25 people over several years you know just things like that you know all this planned work that was paid for that was um really carefully set up from abroad just didn't come to fruition and the other problem is is that you know organizations like the the un sponsored red cross are, are sending in these you know international experts who who come in with these preconceived notions that um Soviet citizens are chronic welfare cases. You know, they don't have chronic radiation syndrome. They're, they're just looking for a handout. Um, that these people, these, social, these socialists are just, you know, people always looking to shirk work and, and, and get some foreign aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're real, very dismissive. Um, 
you know, they didn't have a common language with us, but, you know, these are mostly sort of farm, rural-based people. They're not a glamorous-looking uh, people. And they, you know, they just, they didn't have a common language. And then the third thing I find is that just a year after the accident, uh, in just outside of Washington, D.C., the American Association of Health Physicists met. These are the people that set standards for nuclear uh, installations and nuclear emergencies. And they met and they were addressed at their opening conference by a lawyer from the Department of Justice. And he said, look, the biggest threat to nuclear power right now is are not is not another big accident like Chernobyl. It's not the, you know people coming up with illnesses like we hear these reports from Chernobyl. It's lawsuits. And so we're going to have breakout sessions and all of you health physicists are going to uh, be trained to be expert witnesses on behalf of the U.S. government for these lawsuits that are emerging. And the, and the lawsuits at the end of the Cold War, when the archives opened, had to do with people who were exposed in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to um, radioactive fallout from nuclear testing and the production of, of nuclear bombs. So mm. Nevada downwinders, Hanford downwinders, people in the Marshall Islands, people in French Algeria, and you know people exposed in Western Australia to British bombs, people in the South Pacific exposed to British and French bombs, um, mm. and people in the Soviet Union exposed to the production testing of nuclear weapons. They are all going to court. Mm-hmm. And if you could say, oh, Chernobyl was the world's worst nuclear disaster, and only mm-hmm. 54 people died, then those lawsuits <laughs> could go away. Right. And, that's, right. and yeah. that's how Chernobyl was ironically instrumentalized uh, mm-hmm. for on behalf of the nuclear industry mm-hmm. to keep nuclear power that's, going. That's very cynical. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you point yeah, but, out again in your intro, uh, you know, all those you know, documentaries always go to the, you know, look, it's spring in, in Chernobyl and the animals are back and the birds are mm-hmm. back. And that's just all part of this larger yeah, yeah, way of representing it. Yeah. Yeah. But but speaking of that uh, abandoned, um, you know, part of Ukraine, basically, um, I, I guess Belarusia wasn't abandoned. But mm-hmm. um, so I. I I'm sure you watched Tarkovsky's Stalker, right? That, yes. D- d- yeah, that was made. Um, I mean, I, I love most of his movies, but this one seems very kind of prescient about Chernobyl. Uh, yeah. Obviously, he didn't know it was coming. It was a few years, went for, I think, four or five years before the disaster. Yeah, it wasn't in the No, I No, no, no. It's, it's like 80, I think I checked, maybe like 82. Is it 82? Uh huh. Uh huh. It's later, and it, like, he had to shoot it twice because I think some like uh, film was destroyed. So it might be. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the part of the film was destroyed. So I don't know. He might have started shooting in 1980, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So way before, way before the catastrophe, and you know, it it is the zone there, <laughs> very much resembles kind of yes. in the feel, uh, the zone right. of alienation. So I don't know. I I I, I mean. Tarkovsky in this case kind of almost some kind of <laughs> the prophet that people think of him he kind of proves that it's somewhat true I don't know how, how do you look at the film because you've been actually to the zone of alienation so you you can really compare it first it looks and a lot, it looks a lot alike it. and I, I think it was mm-hmm. uh, you might you, can, you might um, correct mm-hmm. me but I thought it was also filmed not far from there 
Oh, in interesting. Ukraine. That's what I thought, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but no, it's probably uh-huh. not an accident in that this film was based on the Strugatsky's Brothers' Roadside Picnic, mm-hmm. uh, a mm-hmm. sci-fi uh, novel, yeah. short little novel. And they, those guys were physicists, who you know, Soviet physicists who worked in this sort of rarefied world. And I, I, what I understand is they heard rumors of an, an abandoned territory in Siberia after a nuclear accident in 1957 at the Mayak plutonium plant, in which 20 mm-hmm. million curies of radioactive waste was disgorged from this underground uh, waste storage unit and just belched into the air. And it went um, with the winds and created sort of a tongue-shaped trace that had to be mm-hmm. evacuated of the villages that were in it. And and then they did that, you know, that so there there was this terrain that had these mysterious contam- invisible contaminants, like you see in the stalker, um, with abandoned villages and, and roads that are sort of cracking. And I, and I think that's what the Strugatsky brothers and Tarkovsky were referencing in 1980 mm-hmm. it was that event and then it, then when then later when everybody saw it they, they think also Chernobyl um, mm-hmm. so it's maybe not so much prescient as it's um, these nuclear events start to they're all quite different um, but they start to look alike when when you have to you know, retreat and abandon territory and uh, industrial infrastructure and all that I see. So it's almost, yeah. Then it's not as, I guess, prophetic or magical as I, no, as I would sorry, think. I'm sorry. I just blew it. For no, you. no. It's, I like it even better. It's responsive to what's actually happening. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the uh, roadside picnic, I think I read it like a while back when I was a kid, as any Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. I uh, It's interesting. I thought that the, the, the kind of the feeling was very much different from the movie. So mm-hmm. I don't remember yeah. if it was, I, I might have remembered it wrong, but it didn't feel like it's as kind of like man-made disaster uh, hmm. the zone uh, as, as in the movie. But I actually, you know, I take it back. I should probably re- reread if, yeah, if you feel that it's either. pretty accurate. If it's um, pretty accurate to the source, you think? Yeah, yeah. no. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. But I, but I, I need. I guess I need to check because I don't know. In my head, Tarkovsky seems to be so much better than Strugatsky brothers. So I guess yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to give them credit. You definitely put a spookier spin in the movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, than in the roadside picnic. And he, yeah. uh, you know, in the original um, place out in the, in the Urals where that was contaminated, that was mostly just villages. Very mm-hmm. rural. There were no where you see in Tarkovsky's stalker, he said like something Pripyat like kind of abandoned industrial spaces and cities. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that that might have been, you know, Tarkovsky's um, embellishment that does that does turn out to be prescient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, who knows? He might have he might have felt something. It's also because in the movie, as uh, you know, also there's like a kind of almost an echo or like a prediction of the collapse of the Soviet Union in a way because if the professor and the writer sort of like the Soviet metaphor for the Soviet intelligentsia elite or something do not believe in anything Mm -hmm. and kind of this this seemed to be completely 
sort of weirdly cynical mm-hmm. people. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's clearly not <laughs> not not going anywhere uh, as a society. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So I don't know. There was a feel of the complete kind of despondence about everything, not just environment, but the you know the Soviet society mm-hmm. at large. But that's me reading. I guess <laughs> might be into it. Also already living in the post-Soviet Russia, so that's that's easier to read probably into it. But yeah, um, yeah, I wonder because I, I mean I, I I definitely find your book so much more interesting and scary than the show. But I, but I feel like I kind of want to tackle a few things or ask you a few things specifically about the you know the show the movie uh, because you seem to be I thought I somehow thought you would be way more kind of negative or hateful towards it than you are than the so, so then towards the show yeah towards yeah. the show so i i read it wrong but um yeah so and i wonder what do you if if we can just talk about specifically about the show did you like the, the static despite this kind of obviously gross i mean some of those stereotypes and cold worry kind of feel to it but some of it was you know, even, yeah, I didn't you know, approach it, mm-hmm. right. I didn't approach it thinking that this is going to be history. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't bothered that the miners, for instance, weren't wearing clothes. Right. And that was kind of a bizarre <laughs> decision to make, but whatever. He's an artist. He can make those decisions. Yeah. And he's not claiming this to be history. I mean, later on in his podcast, he kind of claimed this is all true. And that's uh-huh. where he gets in trouble. But I think he set out to make, you know, a drama, a fictional drama. And so that, that seems fair. Um, but aesthetically, I thought, I, I agree with you that I thought it was, you know, the, especially the dialogue was really wooden. Um, and, and, and that was maybe supposed to be because that's how the Western world understood Soviets, as mm-hmm. these wooden, awkward people who spoke in party prose mm-hmm. and didn't have any kind of color, any kind of local color themselves. So that, and also I just, I that as a, Cold War text. All, yeah. a lot of latitudes, mm-hmm. exactly. So I took that as a Cold War uh, text that way. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't, didn't surprise me. Um, but I, I thought aesthetically, I liked how uh, the apartments look like Soviet apartments. Mm-hmm. I knew and the, and the clothing, mm-hmm. I, I think you paid a lot of attention to those kinds of details um, and there were there's so much documentary evidence, you know, photographic evidence from that time, both specifically about the Chernobyl incident, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that I, as I suggest that emphasizes heroism and selflessness and the loyalty of the Soviet populace. Um, but there's also just mm-hmm. you know a lot of documentary evidence about what the late Soviet Union looked like, and I thought he was you know nicely faithful to that. I think. In fact, from what I understand it in Mason's podcast, that he, you know, he said there the Soviets had you know one kind of uniform and one kind of truck, and so it was easy to find that that mm-hmm. stuff and just you know either reproduce it or make it you know have you know dress his actors or characters in that. So I thought that was um, nice about it. Uh, I thought it was an interesting choice to have the. Um, the female, what was her name? The female scientist. Homuk. Something. Yeah. Last name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, the, you know that that was totally unbelievable that some volunteer scientist could just show up. Exactly. Um, wow. Start, start functioning in <laughs> both in the very you know closed off hospital and the closed off uh, zone without a pass. Um, yeah. But it's interesting in that this Belarusian part in that um, 
there was a Belarusian scientist by the name of Nesterenko, who I write about in my book, and he kind of independently started measuring on the Belarusian side, found you know, alarmingly high rates of radioactivity in, in southern Belarus, and then um, started getting his fellow scientists in the medical profession in Belarus interested in doing studies, and they quietly started all these studies in 1986 where they tracked uh, children's health and they checked um, fertility and reproductive outcomes, uh, etc. And that, I thought that was kind of, I, I don't know how how he knew that or if, you know, maybe he had read about Nesterenko, but uh, that was sort of a composite character and, and he makes it a, a female actress because otherwise there really are very, very few women in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was kind of an interesting interjection because quietly on the Belarusian side they're, they're not in Moscow they're not even invited to the big meetings Belarusia was just left out of it but they start doing their own kind of uh, behind the scenes research and um, and work to try to mitigate the disaster but also Svetlana Alexeyevich is from Minsk and there was speculations True. just because the way the actress looked that it's almost <laughs> They created Alexeyevich, fictionalized oh, character, which yeah. which clearly not, I think uh, he denied it. I don't know. It, oh. There's no kind of confirmance, but it just, she kind of looks like her, if you know how Svetlana Alexeyevich looks and kind of acts, yes, I and, guess. Or, and he must have purchased the rights to use oh, yeah, the he first did. chapter of her book. You know, it's almost, he did, yeah. that story is almost verbatim from her book, yeah. Yeah, but the character, but that's like, obviously I'm speculating and it's not true, but the character seemed very kind of Alexeyevich. Yes, you're right. You're right, this crusading Which, I don't know. person. Yeah, well, and she, of course, yeah. came in much later. I mean, she did that research in the, in the 90s. 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about yeah, the absurdity he, of the mm-hmm. of the baby that takes all the radiation instead of the mother? Mm. I think a lot of critics that actually true were, story. were charting... That's it. Well, according yeah, to the scientists, I, that's not possible. <laughs> well, it's, but it is. I mean, I thought that was really, you know, so the, All, who, the scientist who they're quoting is, is you know, um, Gail, Dr. Gail. Oh, really? Because all yeah. these critics were mm-hmm. made, made that one, their centerpiece. Source, yeah. that that's I mean, the most became, inaccurate thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. He became a, a nuclear specialist. I'm, I'm making air quotes. So wait, a um, baby yeah. in the womb could gather. So the placenta is a wonderful a conduit uh-huh. for, mm-hmm. for you know, the mother delivers vitamins and, and minerals to the baby so the baby mm-hmm. will thrive and a mother's body becomes extremely efficient at soaking up from its food all you know whatever whatever is there of value to deliver it through the placenta to the and to the fetus and so um, we, you know what the, the, the fetus didn't make a decision to save the mother um, but the that those radioactive isotopes that mimic vitamins and minerals would have gone to the baby. And mm-hmm. we know that, you know, uh, babies, women who were pregnant, you know, especially you know, in that, in that those areas had, you know, about a 50% rate of um, having a baby that thrived. And so that means about half the babies were not surviving. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether the, the, you know, those radioactive isotopes would then have lodged in the mother's body and, and killed the mother. That you know, that is a little bit of a, of a poetic license. But certainly, those babies did take 
radioactive contaminants from their mother's bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting, yeah, but that that's straight from uh, Alexeyevich kind of mm-hmm. re- reporting, so I, I tended to trust it. I mean, I but think yeah, that- critics, you know, again, sounds like they all got this wrong. I mean, that was the number one, because I read a number of, of pieces that were like, well, of course, these are the inaccuracies. Um, you know, one has to think about, like, how much... I don't know, maybe not just Americans are inclined to take their history from films like direct mm-hmm. without any sense of, well, this thing is claiming it's all about Chernobyl. And so they watch it saying, well, now I know all about what happened to yes. Chernobyl. It does right. seem like that's that. And that the, that the film, that the show is kind of built in that way and that that's the kind of danger of it. I mean, it's, I thought I found the ending trial part, the most absurdly, melodramatic thing I'd ever seen <laughs> but really bad. very few people said that in response <laughs> that I, at least that I read you know what fascinated me about that trial scene is how um, in an interesting way the producers wrote in all this complicated uh, nuclear engineering into the trial you know with having the red lines and the, and the blue lines and trying to explain a positive void coefficient mm-hmm. And an RBMK reactor. I mean, they, they added a whole new technical vocabulary to our public understanding of, of nuclear history that I thought was pretty fascinating. That I mean, they could have skipped all that, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't. And, and and I think that also is because that technical data is also something that's pretty well uh, discussed in the literature. If you're going to do a search before these three mm-hmm. books that came out in 2018 and 19 about Chernobyl. Before our three books came out, there there wasn't you know a whole lot you could find written in English, and this technical data was there. So they they devoted you know quite a bit. There, you know, there's another helicopter scene where um, they're carefully explaining you know how a reactor works, mm-hmm, uh, which I right. thought was fascinating. Um, and and I think those are kind of work in the film as legitimizers, along with the aesthetic. You know, looking at Soviet, right. speaking Soviet. You know, we we've got our you know our technical knowledge down um, so you can believe us about everything else I think that's right because they, they use those plaques that he's putting up with the information the red and blue that you mm-hmm. mentioned as part of the in drama Russian also for some reason. right and they're all in Russian <laughs> um, as part of the drama because remember when he's when he, he's clearly trying to decide is he really going to speak out Yes. So he's dropping the the, the placards and nervously, mm-hmm. and then he gains greater confidence as you see he's made his decision. He's going to do this incredible, you know, jacuzzi um, um, against you know the Soviet Soviet system at the at the end. Um, and if if I'm understanding right, that that character is that figure who's is a is a real figure is was not at the trial, right? Yeah. Isn't that one of the inaccuracies? He wasn't even That's there. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. But and, it does combine um, exactly as you say in the information that seems so minute that you that you do even feel even if you don't know as you know that it's actually accurate with these really high dramatics and high fictionalizing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood is what Hollywood history. is. <laughs> no, and also Hollywood like writes history for like lay people who don't read, so that's going to be Definitely. Even if you say, oh, no one claims it's pure history, you don't approach it that way. But I think a lot of people would because, you know, it's just the way it is. Yeah. It's just the way it is. There are such seductive images that are very powerful. They sear into your brain and you have trouble saying, was that 
is that true? You mm-hmm. know, it becomes is just part of what you understand as your own memory. Right. That's right. Yeah. True. Well, but as they say, also, I guess when you write, it's all fiction. So even what you write can be interpreted. I would be the first, right? to, I would be the first that. to say that, that's, you know, that what I write is subjective, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I guess we can not criticize it too much. But one thing, again, Kate, I'm curious what you think, because you've been, again, to the area a lot. I still couldn't shed the feeling that what I'm watching, and I know the director is Swedish, and they were shooting, I think, in Lithuania. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. that it, they got accurate, somewhat accurate props. But the feeling of it, it was so clean. It felt more like Finland. It's mm-hmm. like Kauri mm-hmm. smacky movies. I don't know. There's like the aesthetic is Swedish and Finnish, and it's close enough. I know it's close enough to something like Northern Russia or whatever they tried to portray but it, it just lacks any kind of flavor like the buses should be dirty the people should not right. be as to get like not that there are a lot of pretty and whatever well dressed or somewhat like stylish people there obviously but the general feel if they're trying to create just a small city just like sort of simple fogs it's just all so wrong it either goes for me from like um, again, Game of Thrones aesthetic, where the miners show up, you know, like the, the naked kind of um, heroic miners, or back to some Swedish Swedish or Finnish kind of quiet drama in this kind of blue, quiet tones of this like clean apartments, even if it's supposed to show, portray like squalor. I don't know, there's something weird about it. Yes, and again, I think I'm from the. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think oh, okay. you're absolutely so you're... right. And you know, but, but it looks like you know, you're right, sort of Scandinavian film, um, or it looks like Soviet propaganda materials. And they, they put out a whole you know, <laughs> coffee table book about Lipiet when it was this atomic city, this city of uh-huh. the future. And, and and in that you have these really clean sidewalks and, and beautiful you know, like nice little cars that, that you yeah. know, without a lot of, you know, all the mud of the swampy area where it was, you know, that's in Europe's largest swamp is where that plant was, Uh you know, um, so all the mud and the dust, it was a a continual construction site. So it was, you know, like you'd have big holes in the ground and people would be stepping over, you know, wooden planks over the, you know, dugout sidewalk. None of that was there because it it wasn't also in the coffee table photograph Mm -hmm. book. (laughs) <laughs> well exactly well i guess that's i got to my point yeah it just mm-hmm. it's just a bizarre coffee table generally version of yeah. that even reality you know, wearing, you know, because again those yeah. nice thin ties you know no, like right. <laughs> yeah. yeah what <laughs> yeah. yeah well anyway at least a good good point i didn't think about it yeah you say it's almost like uh on the other side of the coin it's like soviet propaganda it's both critical and kind of cold worry but also adopts so certain like pro like yeah so it propaganda like tools and aesthetically it's i guess mm-hmm. flattering like i mean yes. i won't say it's not flattering <laughs> so what am right. i what am i complaining mm-hmm. yeah exactly. mm-hmm. yeah weird combination right hollywood becomes like almost the rupert of the Soviet officials yeah, and a of better the 80s. <laughs> yes. right. Did um, the Russians it, set out to make their own HBO show that was going to feature They're, the they're making. They're still making. Not it, the HBO huh? Chernobyl story where uh, what I read, it's not out yet and I don't know what's happening, but it seems like if it, if the scoops are true, uh, the story they're telling that there were weird, like American, kind of, some kind of like spies sabotage. connected to sabotage, weird thing, which yeah. very 
kind of fitting to the, I guess, yeah. Putin's propaganda today. It's all external enemy. Yeah, that's amazing yeah. because it was a, a 50-page report that the Soviet mm -hmm. KGB put out. They, they immediately thought that American sabotage. And so they, <laughs> well, they, come on. You know, they're interviewing guys on their hospital beds to try to figure out if it was sabotage. And um, July 6, 1986, they present wow. the report to the Politburo saying, you know, we thought it was maybe sabotage, but it definitely was not. Oh. Wow, and so they the were really suspicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a real suspicion. Uh, you know, it, was, you know, it makes sense in the middle of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And they had a huge investigative unit. You know, the KGB had a, a science and technology segment of mm -hmm. people who were you know, recruited as it from, out of the ranks of engineers and scientists. And, and they got right to work on it. And as these guys were dying, they were questioning them in their beds mm -hmm. Jesus and they're you know they're going all over the site looking for for traces of sabotage and, and they just don't find it but as I traveled around the you know the greater Chernobyl zone you know a couple of years ago I would hear a few people say exactly that it was we know we know what it was it was CAA sabotage so that's still <laughs> a very current wow you know, though disproven or newly or newly yeah, some newly kind created, of yeah yeah. Right. Wow. What that's, a strange well, thing to leave out of the Chernobyl show. That would have been so riveting to have those guys being badgered on their deathbeds. I know. It would have been great. They just didn't know it because that, that's something I found in the KGB. Oh, oh that's new. Okay. So they didn't even know <laughs> to use it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Man. But also, like, now it, it's not, a, I mean, it's riveting, but also considering how Americans act right now about this whole Russia gate and seeing Russian influence everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's not even, you know, I don't know. It's it's just very kind of similar. Mm -hmm. So it's not even um I wouldn't even laugh at the Soviets um uh you know that after the Chernobyl disaster that much because there's kind of a similar thing happening here. Exactly. In terms yeah. of the witch hunt of yes. the scale and imaginable. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Um, well, Eileen, do you have? I don't. Do have I think more we've questions. <laughs> we've covered it. I think. Thank you so yeah. much, Kate. That was so informative. Thank and great. you. You're welcome.